Hearing the truth isn't always pleasant, is it? Sometimes when people tell you the truth, it can sting a little bit. It can get under the skin. As a matter of fact, there's a saying that you may have heard uh, that's actually quite popular. It's called, the truth hurts. Yes, you, you know that saying. The truth sometimes hurts. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, amazed. I put out a question on Facebook this week, if you follow me on Facebook. Um, uh, just, you know, when was a time when someone told you the truth and it, it kind of hurt, not because it wasn't true, but because of the way they said it. You know, they said it maybe in a way that, that was maybe hurtful or, or mean, or they could have said it in a better way. Or, maybe even worse, maybe you're a little like me. <laughs> Sometimes you tell someone the truth and then they tell you, you know, you could have said that in a better way, right? I'm sure that has happened. Uh, to you. On, on the Facebook thread, there was one uh, woman who posted that when she was first starting out in business, just graduating school, uh, she was at a trade show and someone told her that she should wear more makeup. Now, when they tell you that you should wear more makeup, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? It's because you need makeup for some reason, right? Now, she thought, well, that's strange. Now, the woman went on to say, you need more makeup because you don't look professional. You're too young. You look too young. Now, later on in life, when you know you're not just getting out of school to start your business or to start your career, you know you're older in life and you're thinking, I want to retire from my business or career, and someone says, hey, you should wear more makeup because you're too young, praise the Lord. I'll take that any day of the week, right? But when you're first starting out, being told that you, know, you should wear more makeup because, and, and the way that it was told was hurtful, wasn't wrong. She did look young, and that was the, the challenge of her just taking that, that hard medicine because the truth hurts. And I know this personally uh, as a pastor because I've had to have hard conversations with people, and sometimes it comes back where they just said, you know, I didn't like the way that you said it. You could have said what you wanted to say better. There was a time Actually, both of these stories involve worship team members. It's really weird. But uh, worship team members are artists, so they're all creatives. There's often that good creative tension and friction that happens when bands and musicians and vocalists all get together. And uh, one day, after, you know, there was just one lady that um, wanted to sing on our team and absolutely really struggled singing. She struggled singing alone, uh, and my rule of thumb has always been, you know, in ministry, uh, to prepare for days like today, which is, if you are the only one able to come that Sunday, can you pull it off? Can you sing? So if you're on the worship team and you're a singer, can you sing on your own and lead the congregation? It doesn't even have to be the songs that you chose. You don't even have to have an instrument if you can't do that, but you have to be able to sing and lead people in worship. And we'll help you get there. Well, this, this lady really struggled with that. And so we had to have a hard conversation. And we said, look, I think there might be a better place for you to serve Jesus in our church than besides singing on the worship team. I know that's hard, uh, but uh, we just don't see this as a good fit. thought that went pretty well. A couple of days later, the pastor phoned me, 
and said, hey, can you come into a meeting? You know, when can you come? Uh, the couple, the husband and the wife want to come. And they said that you were very mean to them. You were harsh and you kicked them off the team. I said, it's not quite what happened. And here's what they said. I have sung in choirs for decades. I know how to sing. I'm sure you do. When you put people around you who can sing and you've got a little bit of of talent, then that gets elevated and they keep you on tune. That, That happens all the time in choirs. But on our team, this is what we want to accomplish. And I'm sorry if that's offensive, but this is the decision. And the pastor backed me up. That was really, really helpful. Um, but she took it harshly. Actually, as a matter of fact, later on, they became good family friends. Interestingly enough, I got a second chance to take another run at that same conversation later on in ministry. Same challenge, there was a person on our worship team who really struggled with singing and pitch and staying on key uh, when she was singing with other people. And so I said, listen, um, we're going to try this whole conversation a different way. Um, you're, it's, we, we can tell you're struggling. We know, we know it's hard for you to stay on key. We'd love for you to get some lessons. We'll pay for them. We'll help pay for them. And then after a few months, we'll have you come back. We'll see how it works and uh, give you that shot on coming back onto the worship team. But right now, it's not going to work. So I thought that was pretty good. Let's have a solution that I offered. And this uh, person, after about a week, phoned me up at the church and said, I'm leaving the church. If I can't serve where I want to serve, I'm going to go somewhere else. You were very hurtful with your words. I'm reading a book actually about it because um, my wife tells me that I have a real gift for telling people the truth sometimes with uh, uh, that sensitivity and kindness that I need to work on. I'm reading a book called Radical Candor. And Radical Candor is a secular uh, business book talking about what it takes to lead. And it says that in order to be able to tell people the hard truths like your work isn't good enough or, you know, you need to be better, you need to solve this, this isn't what we asked for, this, is, this isn't the benchmark that we wanted to hit. You have to have a level of trust and relationship with people. You have to have a, a connection with them before you start to come down and say, here's all these hard decisions that we have to make. And that... By having that trust, you can have that kind of radical counter, count, candor where you have that clear communication with them saying, this isn't acceptable work. It needs to be better. We're redoing it. We're giving it to someone else. We're giving the promotion to someone else because you have that trust built up. And that's true, isn't it? It's not just what it's, is said. It's how it is said. Is that correct? Say amen. Of course, you know that's true. We choose doctors, not only because they're competent, but because they deliver their competency in a caring manner. We want bedside manners. They matter. We want that in business. We want that with anyone we do business with. We want that in our relationships. We want that in our home, right? And kindness is a biblical command, correct? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
So help me this morning because as we get into God's word, I am very confused as to what Jesus is doing. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 7 and take a look at these three verses starting at verse 24. Jesus left that place and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. Not a story that's in any children's Sunday school tech kids curriculum, is it? Because at first read, doesn't it seem like Jesus is being mean? And he's doing it overtly. He's tired. He's tired from ministry. He's tired from confronting the Pharisees about uh, uh, their bad theology. But he's insulting her, isn't he? Some commentators suggest that what Jesus is saying is a slur. What's he doing? What is happening here? Woman comes with a great need, correct? Jesus is popular. He's healing people. He's releasing people uh, from demon oppression. He's releasing people from physical ailments that have, that have uh, weighed down on them all their lives. He's exhausted from that. He's trying to hide outside of Israel. But people find out that he's there and some person shows up at the door and says, please help me, my daughter has an impure spirit. Raise your hand if this confuses you. Because what on earth is Jesus doing? At the very least, it seems like he's being mean, disrespectful, unkind, at the very worst, he's disqualifying her simply out of race. I don't like this passage. Why don't we skip it and let's go on to the next story. We'll just go down to chapter, you know, verse 31 and we'll What is what is happening here? Is Jesus telling the truth? He is. Jesus is definitely telling the truth. This woman is outside of the people of God. And this is the historical truth, and this is the cultural truth. She lived in an area and was part of the uh, history of Israel because her origins are from the land of Canaan. If you grew up in church, you might 
recognize that name because that's the group of people named the Canaanites who God said, I'm taking your land and I'm giving it to my people, my family, my chosen ones. You're gone, they're in. And ever since that happened, ever since the Israelites went into the promised land and took it for their own, they have always stood against God's people. They are pagan of pagan people. They are the definition. In a first century dictionary, you would turn in, your, uh, turn in that book and look at pagan, and you would see these people. She's outside of the people of God, which makes her outside of the blessing of God, right? Culturally, God has chosen to bless his people. That's how his blessings work. He makes his blessings available to those who believe, who are on the inside. It's the privilege of his family to come to him and say, will you bless me? Will you provide for me? Not for those who are outside the family. This is historically and culturally true. This woman could not get further away from the people of God that God wanted to bless. Jesus is telling the truth. But is he being unkind or is there something else happening? There's a funny thing about context. We talked about the historical context and the cultural context as we try to understand this story. There's a third context that you and I need to wrestle with if we're going to understand this story and it's called the biblical context. All of you are privileged to live in an area, uh, in an era, and all of us are privileged to live in an era where anyone can have a copy of God's word. Scriptures available to us that took thousands of years to write, councils of Christians and theologians deciding what's in, what's out according to God's guidance. And putting it together that say that these words are the very words of God. Translated in languages all around the world. You can pull out your phone. Download an app and have God's word available to you in multiple translations in English alone. Let alone the languages of the world. We live in a privileged area. However, that privilege sometimes causes us to miss the forest for the trees. We miss the biblical context. So allow me to take you on a journey. What is the Bible? It's a book. Say it with me. It's a book. But it's more. It's a book with books in it. Mark is one of those books. Mark's story and recollection about Jesus is one of those books. Mark wasn't writing everything down as Jesus was doing them. As a matter of fact, most scholars believe that Mark compiled all of the necessary stories to convince people that Jesus was the Son of God from the witness of Peter. And they weren't even in Israel when Peter and Mark were writing this together, when Mark was putting everything down, then the stories that Peter was confirming for him. As a matter of fact, a lot of them think they were in western area of the Roman Empire, a place, if it wasn't Rome, might have been Venetia. 
where this woman was from, from this story. So this isn't live action. We don't have cameras right on the scene where this is happening. Mark is recalling it. That's the biblical context. Here's the second problem of how we miss the forest for the trees. As Mark wrote his gospel, he did not give us headers and chapters and verses that we reference and that we put up um, over and over on our screen so you can see them. Uh, when, if you're watching online or in our Bibles, there's little markers. There's little uh, divisions in the chapters. It was just one giant document. No punctuation. No verses. No chapters. No headers that said, this is what's happening. And sometimes, the challenge of translation is that we put a chapter somewhere and we automatically think as Western English readers, ah, a new thought is developing, when it's really not. The thought is part of something else that came from the previous chapters or in the context of story, two, three, or four English chapters before. Those things can cause us to miss the biblical context. And as a side note, this is why at this church, why I'm a firm believer in looking at the entire book of the Bible that we want to study. I'm more than willing to, to preach topical messages. You can do topic expository messages. You can do verse-by-verse -verse analysis if verse-by-verse -verse is the best way to understand what the original author's message was to the original audience. I'm a firm believer in looking at all of those things, but the best way to understand Scripture is to read a book of the Bible in one sitting so that you get the sense of the theme and you can start to see, okay, if there's no chapters and there's no verses and there's no headers, where does a story seem to start and where does a story seem to finish? I don't think this is a story on its own. That's why we preach through books of the Bible here. So that we can see those connections. Now that's just our part. That's just the church's part. That's what uh, my uh, preaching philosophy is. But you play a part in that as well. The way that helps you not miss the forest for the trees when it comes to the book of the Bible. Is to participate in listening and engaging each and every week. It does you no good and you know this. If you miss a week. Because then all of a sudden you've missed, wait a second, something happened in the story that I'm not familiar with. And let's face it, the way that we design worship services each and every Sunday is that they're often standalone events, right? They're kind of disconnected from the one before, the service before, and the service the week before that, and the service the week before that. They feel like they're disconnected. And one of the best things that we can do as people who come to sit under biblical context preaching is to review what we heard, to get into groups to discuss what we heard. How do we apply it? Because, like a puzzle, it all connects together. Each book has a mini grand narrative. All put together... It's the meta-narrative of history that God is telling. And it's our job to not make sure that we miss, don't miss the forest 
because we're so focused on the trees and isolating each Sunday week after week after week. And you already do this in real life, don't you? With your favorite shows, you don't miss an episode. And if you do miss an episode, what do you do? You find it on a streaming platform and you watch it before you watch the next one. You'd never watch them out of sequence. You can do the same thing with God's stories in the Bible. Now, with all that in mind, we need to know that not only is there a historical context, there's a cultural context that's happening here, but there's a biblical context that's happening here. Uh, Let me just ask you, do you remember what we talked about last week? Right, I hardly did. Full disclosure, it's very difficult. I'm not judging anyone. This is a difficult thing to put into practice, but when I was looking at, okay, I want to I want to tell everyone what we did last week. What did we do last week? I had to go to my sermon notes from last week and just copy and paste a couple of notes. But I want to do that this morning. I think this is why TV shows realize that one of the things that can happen to us is life from week to week. And they want us to still engage. So what they do is they say, last time on whatever the TV show is, and they give you a few clips that at least, you know, refresh your memory to go, oh yeah, they were talking about that. And sometimes they'll go six, seven, eight, all the way back to the season's beginning that this scene happened, and you go, wait, why are they reminding us of this again? Because they're going to deal with it somehow in this episode. Let me remind you, let's do a quick recap of last time in Son of God which sounds really good in a room that has a lot of reverb. That was awesome. I loved that. I loved that. I knew that would work. We talked about real faith versus placebo faith. And placebo faith is something that focuses on our habits. Here's good things that I do. Therefore, I'm righteous and spiritual. I go to church. I read my Bible. I give. I serve. I invite others. I'm a spiritual person. Look at all the things I do. And Jesus says, actually, no, no, no. I want to get past that. These habits that you have are supposed to help transform your heart. Real faith doesn't just change your habits. It changes your hearts. What's the motivation behind that? Why am I tempted by that, really? What is my heart trying to tell me? That's what I want. Why do I want that instead of God? How can I make this right? So it makes you ask. And a very important question. If real faith changes our hearts, how do we know our hearts have been changed? What's it look like? That's why we have this story. What does a transformed heart look like? What does God see? In a heart that's been transformed with real faith. Welcome to the woman's response. We read in verse 28. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Food is for the children, not worth giving to the dogs. Lord, She replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. 
And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. What an amazing response that causes Jesus to seemingly change his mind. What's so amazing about the response? Someone calls you a dog, what are you going to do? You know, fight them. You know, challenge them. How dare you? What does she do? She embraces it. And she proves in this one sentence that she understands who she is before God and she understands who God is regardless of who she is. Let me explain what that means. The woman knew she didn't deserve God's help. She didn't argue. In the context of history, in the context of culture, she knew who she was to the Israelites. She knew that her going to a miracle worker who was a Jew was something that every one of her family members and every one of her friends would have ridiculed her for. She knew what she was doing by saying, I'm going to you for help. Yes, I know who you are. Yes, I know who I am. I still need your help. She knew she did not deserve the help of Jesus. She did not deserve God's help. But she had faith in God's grace because of how blessings work. The cultural and historical reality of how God blessed his people was for what purpose? Just so that they would enjoy God's favor? Think back all the way to when God promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. Why did he want to do that? For two reasons. The one was because he could. (laughs) The second was so that all nations of the world will be blessed. She understood how God worked. She understood who she was. She understood who God is. And that's why she came and didn't fight for her rights. But instead said, I know who I am. I don't deserve this. But I know how your God blesses people. I know his intentions for blessings. And in that moment... She discovers what we need to discover about a heart that is really transformed by faith. And that is, it is a heart marked with true humility. What this woman displayed was true humility to not argue with God and say, no, I'm not really like that. No, my sin's not really that bad. No, the sin of my people is not really that bad. She instead accepted the definition of reality that Jesus told her a harsh truth that her people had always been nipping at the heels of the of the of the people of God and she didn't fight for her need she humbly asked for help because she firmly believed that that's how God worked that's what he does when he blesses and that's an amazing thought isn't it your heavenly father our heavenly father loves to bless his people. It's one of his primary joys and passions is to bless you and I. And how many of us deserve it? None of us. 
do. None of us deserve that favor, and yet he comes and he showers us with this grace. And the amazing thing about this grace that he promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that's how his blessings work. Blessings from God always spread beyond the immediate recipient because he is generous. It's getting close to planting season, isn't it? Praise God. (laughs) It's better than shoveling season. And maybe you're a gardener. Maybe you're someone who's going to put a flower bed outside. You know, it's interesting that if you put fertilizer in the ground, till it, get the weeds out, water it regularly over the course of the growing season, have you ever noticed that the grass outside of that flower bed is a little bit greener than the rest of your lawn? Why is that? Because the fertilizer doesn't stay compacted directly in that box, that zone, that flower bed that you put everything in. Unless it's like a window flower bed, that's a little bit different. But watch this summer, as you put your flowers out by the side of your house or have your flower bed going, just take a look and see what, the, what is the color of the grass compared to the rest of your lawn if you water your plants regularly, if you care for your plants regularly, it's going to be healthier just because of proximity. That's how blessings work. The water from the watering can or the hose hits the plant and it gets all the nutrients and refreshment that it needs. It gets all the water that it needs. But some of those beads of water, they soak into the ground and it saturates out below from the flower bed and the flower box and it goes to other places that you didn't intend to water in the first place. That's how God's blessings are intended to work. That's why God encourages us to give to His work financially. You know, it's amazing. When you put your envelope in the offering plate or you click that submit button online to tithe here at the church, you don't just receive a blessing from the Lord as you do that. Other people are blessed. Ministries receive the resources that they need. Curriculums purchased for TAC kids, for youth. They're able to go on retreats. They're able to go to conferences and training. They're able to buy curriculum for groups, for study. And people are encouraged. People that you didn't even know would be blessed. Their lives are changed just simply because you gave. You receive a blessing from the Lord. As he cares for you and he takes that gift and he blesses others. It always spreads. And he does that through his people. We're to be people like that. And what Jesus is doing here in this story is just so amazing. It seems so rude, but it's so amazing because all he's doing is testing her understanding of faith. And Mark is showing us what a real transformed heart is. A real transformed heart is humble. And this woman passed with flying colors because of her humility. She simply said, I know who I am. You're right, I don't deserve this. She essentially agrees with Jesus without ever saying it. I am a dog compared to your people. No question. That's a humbling thought. Especially in a world where we fight for our rights. 
way we do. But she just says, it's not about me. I know who God is. And I have seen your God at work because I've seen your people. And I know that as you bless them, they can't help but bless others. That's the nature of blessings. That's how it works. That's how he works. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm coming. I don't deserve it. I'm only asking for grace, trusting that you are a God who loves to show it, who loves to bless. And what she shows us is that her humility moved the hand of God. Humility moves the hand of God. It's how we experience Him in a, in a fresh way, in a, in a deeper way, when we realize that we're not coming to God as an equal. And we're not coming to God better than other people because we believe something. No, we're, we're, we're better because of who He is, because of His blessings, because of His grace. James would later say, in his letter that he wrote to the scattered churches that God opposes the proud. He opposes them, but gives grace to the who? Humble. Not the worthy, but the humble. So as we wrap up, what is humility? Humility, I believe, is something that can just simply cannot be self-declared. But it something that makes you self-aware you can't declare that you're humble you can't go to someone and say you know i think my greatest quality is my extreme humility you automatically know that's a disqualification i think there's even a meme about that it's quite hilarious but humility generates self-awareness of who you really are charles spurgeon said it this way humility is to make a right estimate of oneself and I think from what we see from the example of this woman, that humility teaches us that God gets to define us as he sees us, and that's always best, even if it sounds harsh. Even when it sounds harsh, because sometimes God, out of his love, needs to give us a little poke so that we take him seriously. And humility knows that as we realize God's reality, that we don't deserve God's help, we cannot earn God's help. It is just a blessing to know a God who loves to give it. Now, to be fair, humility is not a lack of self-esteem either. You have value. I'm not saying that you don't. God is not saying that you don't have value. What humility says is that you are not what makes you valuable. What makes people valuable? That they were created in the image of God. That God was the one who gave them life, and because God gave them life, that automatically gives them value and worth as well. So humility allows you to know your place in the world without trying to take over God's place in the world. It's humility that moves the hand of God. Church, let's not fear God's diagnosis of who we are. Let's let him speak to us, 
even if it's harsh, even if it hurts, because sometimes truth does that. But remember that as he speaks truth to us, that's going to remind us of where we're really at, and it's going to show us how great God really is, because it's going to prove again and again and again and again that our God is a God of grace who loves to bless his people, and the way that we receive that blessing is humility. It's humility that moves the hand of God. Some questions for you to think about this week that may come up in your growth group. Here they are. Think of a time when a friend has told you a harsh truth about you. So they're not making something up. They're not lying. They just say something and it sounds harsh, but it's true. How did you respond? Second question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your confidence level in asking for God's insight into who you really are, into who he sees you as? How confident are you? And finally, third question, how can Christians be confident and humble as they ask God for his blessing and provision? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are um, humbled by the faith of this woman from this story who did not challenge Jesus' assessment of her, her people. She did not try to deny that, but she simply clung to the character of God and said, I know who he is too, and I know how his blessings work. May you give us that kind of faith that even though you peel off the blinders of helping us understand who we are, that we don't draw our value from our own self-worth, But would you help us to see that in spite of who we are, you give us value because of your worth. You love to bless. You love to provide. You love to care for people. And that is a humbling thing that even when we don't deserve it, because of who you are, we can come with our problems. We can come with our situations. We can come when we feel like we are at the end of our rope and we've tried everything else and we can turn our lives to you because of who you are, because of what you've done. That is the great message of the gospel. And Lord, if there's some here today, some watching online that are listening thinking, I could never do that. I could never never wrap my mind around just who I am. Lord, would you give them an understanding of who you are and who Jesus is and how their lives can be changed and forgiven and all of their needs met in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you help them to know that they can pray, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. And that because he is alive, my sins can be forgiven. So forgive me, and I choose to follow you. They can pray that. Would you give them the courage and the humility to do so? And for those of us, us, Father, who have really been drawing our self-worth and our value from, hey, you know, we're pretty good. (laughs) Lord, would you remind us that it's not about us. 
that it's all about you. What you do in our hearts. How you change us. And would you cause us to surrender our lives humbly to the truth about who we are so that we can experience even more greatly the truth of who you are, our gracious Heavenly Father who loves to bless. Lord, you remind us that it's humility that is the sign of a transformed heart and it's humility that moves the hand of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.